says on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us what a great statement of faith do you love to worship the Lord I mean, he has created us for this he has created us for this. that's why you exist that's why I exist this morning we're gonna be in 2nd Corinthians chapter 2 and then we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 and chapter 4 unless God does something different in the midst of the service. How's that? Uh, that'll just be our deal. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to start looking at Paul was writing to the Corinthian church and, and he, was going through a, he was going through a difficult time in his life. And have you ever done that? Have, have you ever gone through a difficult time in your life? Oh, but on, on the external, your career is going great, your profession is going great, everything's going good on the external, but, God, you struggle with peace. I mean, you struggle with that issue of, of just peace in your life. And, and this is Paul, and Paul was so transparent that he says something that's kind of just shocking for a, a Christian leader, and, and he says but I had no peace of mind. See, sometimes we get caught up into false beliefs and we think that, you know, the, uh, when you're a Christian, you automatically get peace. And that's not true. See, what was going on in Paul's life with this issue of a broken relationship? Isn't it funny how much power relationships have in your life and my life? That everything can be going great in your career and your profession and everything else. But there's some dysfunction. There's a broken relationship. There's hurt. There's pain. And I've learned this. It only takes one, right? And if you're not careful, like Paul, it'll rob you of your peace. And you'll be just like Paul, a believer. Man, following God, doing some great things and say, but... I still have no peace of mind. Now, in the passages that we're going to look at this morning, Paul begins to give us, I believe, four things that whenever you and I lose peace in our life, how do you regain peace? Because that's the real question. Because we are going to have broken relationships. We are going to have dysfunction in life. And so how do you and I come to the point when we lose peace, when we're like Paul, and we can say, you know what? I don't have peace. How do we regain peace in our life? The first thing that Paul did in Philippians and in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 was this, is that Paul was able to identify what was causing his anxiety in his life and address it. Paul was able to identify what's causing the anxiety, what's causing the problem in his life, and willing to address it. Now, a lot of us, we are excellent at identifying what's causing the anxiety in our life. We're really good at that. We know where that's coming from. But man, oh man, it, it's a step deeper than that. It's willing to identify what's causing anxiety in your life, what's causing you to lose peace. But then it goes deeper and it's the willingness to, to just address it in life. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2. He says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found the Lord had opened the door for me, 
Man, his ministry is exploding. You can read in Acts what was going on there, but the ministry was exploding. People were getting saved. The church was growing. He was starting small groups. He was starting life groups. He was starting all this different stuff. Fact is, he even read, or raised someone from the dead. Remember that story of Eutychus when, when, when Paul was, was preaching and, and he went on and on one night and Eutychus was sitting on the windowsill and he fell asleep. He fell out. He fell two stories down. He hit the ground. He died. Paul ran down there. Did, true preacher. Didn't even break stride. Didn't even interrupt him. He ran down, laid hands on him, raised him from the dead and brought him back up to listen, let him finish hearing the sermon. I mean, it was amazing what was going on. Fact is, there were probably others in the, in the, in the community. Others said, oh man, look at Paul. Paul is so successful. If I was as successful as Paul, I would have peace in my life. I mean, look at his career. Look at what's going on. Look at how God's hand is on him. But Paul was so transparent. And Paul was like, God opened the door for me. Yeah, I had no peace of mind. Watch this. He says, I still had no peace of mind because why? Here he goes. Because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So, I just said goodbye to them. And I went on to Macedonia. See, Paul knew where his anxiety was coming from. And he was willing to address it because, listen, you can identify where it's coming from, but if you're unwilling to address it, you'll never regain peace in your life. And here's what we can learn from Paul. Success never guarantees peace in your life. You just need to understand that. We can be no different than the people of Paul's day and looking into Paul's life and says, if I had a ministry like him, if I could preach like him, if I could raise the dead to, to life again, if I could do the things Paul could do, then guess what? I would have peace in my life. But Paul's the one on the inside. He's talking about an internal peace, not an external peace. And Paul is going on the inside. But wait a minute. I have no peace of mind. Why? Because of broken relationships. Titus isn't there. Here's what was happening. Paul had written to the Corinthian church. He had rebuked them. He had asked them to make some changes. He had told them that the immorality, they, they had to change. It was before the time of the internet and text messaging and cell phones and landlines and all the stuff that we have today of instant communication. And Paul had rebuked them and sent them a letter and then told Titus to go see them and then come to Troas and give him a report. And there he is doing ministry and ministry has expo exploded and going well. So he's successful, he's prosperous, everything's happening. And he says, but I still have no... No peace of mind. You ever done that in life? You ever confronted someone? Someone that had hurt you? Someone that had betrayed you? You ever confronted someone in life and said, this hurt, this needs to change? You know what that waiting period is like from the conversation to where they answer back, whether you did it by letter, email, cell phone? face to face will they like me will they hate me will they rebuke will will they leave me our mind always thinks the worst right I mean Paul gets there and since Titus isn't there he thinks the worst now listen I love Paul Paul's a hero of mine because he's a church planner at heart But it's so freeing to me to realize that someone like Paul dealt with anxiety 
or someone like Paul thought the worst. And so Paul's thinking, you know what, if Titus isn't here, it can't be good. I mean, Titus stopped by Corinth. They hate me. They, they, they're talking about me. They don't love me anymore. And the anxiety caused him to walk away. See, you have to be willing to identify it and willing to address it. I mean, the type of peace that Paul is talking about is relief from anxiety. It's an internal, not external. It's a broken relationship. And see, the only reason Paul cared is because he loved them. I mean, he cared deeply. The only reason you care is because you love that individual. You care. See, Paul was vulnerable. So many of us, we're so scared to be vulnerable. We're so scared to just be open and let people know around us that they got power into our life. That they can hurt us, that we're dependent upon them, that, that, that we, we need them. But not Paul. And not Paul. Watch this a little bit later. Now, Paul didn't have this information at the time, but... He writes later in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6 and 7 about Titus's report. And that's, watch this. He says, but God who comfort, 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 comforts, I'll get it out, the downcast. In other words, he says, I was downcast. I was depressed. Comforted us by the coming of Titus is when he heard the report. And only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me. Good news. You still love me. You still care for me. You long for me to come and see you, even after what I've said, even after how I've addressed this. Your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me. Watch this. So that my joy was greater than ever. See, we have all these false beliefs. We'll identify the anxiety. We'll identify what's robbing us of our peace. We'll identify in relationships what's giving us anxiety. But so many of us are afraid to confront and address it because we're worried about the response. But for Paul, he said, my joy is greater than ever because of how you responded. And my joy is greater than ever. People have power in our life, and we need to understand that. That's okay. But Paul moved to this point, just being transparent and saying, I care and I love you. And I love you too much to ignore it, so we need to address it and identify it. And their relationship developed deep. What's going on in your life? If you have some broken relationships, if, if something's given, have you, have you identified it? Have you even addressed it? Because if we're not careful, we'll be no different than Paul in that our mind will think the worst. The second thing that Paul was able to do to, to, to just to, to regain peace in his life, Paul was able to stop complaining. And he began very quickly, started pra praising God for what God had done in his life. Man, if we're going to move, if we're going to regain peace in our life, well, I'm just telling you, we've got to stop complaining. And we've got to stop complaining about what God is not doing in our life, and we need to learn to praise Him for what He is doing in our life. I mean, Paul moved quickly from, I have no peace of mind. My brother Titus is not here. 
And then verse 14, he goes, but thanks be to God. I mean, you watch this shift in his life to where all of a sudden he's moved from complaining or he's moved from his issues. And all of a sudden he's moving his focus to God. He's reflecting this attitude of worship. Listen, the most often used word for worship in the Old Testament and the New Testament is an interesting word. In the Old Testament, it's shakah. And it's a reflexive verb. In other words, it, it means this, that I did the action and I did the action to myself. If you explain that out, it would be, I hit myself with my hand. It's a reflexive verb. It means I first have to do something to myself. Worship is, demands a response. Worship is something that you and I first have to do to ourselves to come into worship with God. It's more than just singing. It's more than going through the motions. It's more than... Man, it's more than being distracted. Man, worship demands first a response from me. First a response from you. It's a reflexive verb. It may be an attitude that you have to confess. An attitude, it may be pride. It may be arrogance. It may be a sin issue in your life. Worship is submitting to the one who is greater than you. And worship will always be difficult if you think you are the greater one. Man, this is just for free. Uh, the notes aren't going to come up on the screen. I just want to see you see this before we move. Uh, Luke chapter 7, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. I, I just feel like we just need to stop right here. and We just, we just got to understand this. It was, it was the issue of the sinful woman, and she was, she was a prostitute, and everybody knew her story. I mean, everybody knew who she was in town. And she has the most beautiful picture of what worship is. It plays out this reflexive verb uh, for worship. The scripture says this, as soon as I find it. Verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he took his place at the table, speaking of Jesus. So now Jesus is at this, is, is at this meal with this Pharisee. And, so, and then watch this. And behold, and I'm reading now the ESV, so it may be different than what you're reading out of. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. She was public. Her sin was public. She was a prostitute. Everybody knew about her. Everybody knew her story. And behold, a woman in the city, of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flash of ointment. Now watch this. We're going to walk through the different postures, the form of worship. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Here's worship. Okay? She starts out. She starts out from behind Jesus, right? She didn't feel like she was worthy to approach him. She's a sinner. She's a prostitute. 
everybody knows about her sin. If everybody knows about her sin, then for sure God knows about her sin in her mind. And so she doesn't even think she can approach him. But worship is a reflexive verb. You first have to do something to yourself before you come into worship. And so she moves. And she stands at his feet. And then the scripture says, she wet his feet with her tears. For her to do that, her head had to be bowed. And her tears aren't really streaming down her face. They are dropping directly onto the feet of Jesus. Who knows how long she stood there. And then the scripture goes on. Because I first must do something to myself before I can come into worship of him. Then the scripture says... Did she begin to wipe and dry his feet with her hair? So she had to undo her hair and allow it to flow. And for her to do that, she had to bow, right? And then she began to wipe his feet. And then she gave an offering to him. That some criticized her for. Because it was so much. And Jesus rebuked them. And says. He who has been forgiven of much. Loves much. Worship is realizing. How much we've been forgiven for and of. Worship is more than words, and worship, is, worship demands to where it captures my attention. And Paul understood that. Paul understood that worship in his life was key to moving out and to reestablishing peace of mind and peace in his life. And Paul understood that he had to come to this point to where he had to quit complaining and he had to look at what God was doing in his life and he says, but thanks be to God for what God is doing in my life and that if I'm going to worship and if you're going to worship, then we got to come and we got to thank God for, boy, what he's doing in our life instead of what we're upset that he's not doing. Paul said later in the Philippians chapter 4, 6 and 7, now, don't be anxious about anything, but anything by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, important word, that's circled in my Bible. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. In other words, there's a place where we take our prayer. There's a place where we take our complaints, if you will. There's a place where we make our requests known to God. See, when you and I complain about our problems... You increase the anxiety in your life. Man, you just do. But when you praise God for his goodness and for what he's doing in your life, then you increase the peace in your life. Because here's what happens when, when you and I begin to complain about what God is not doing in our life. You know what happens? Your problems, my problems get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And they can get to the point that God's not even big enough to take care of your problems. Man. We're the most blessed generation 
There may never be a generation as blessed as my generation again. And yet we can be constant complainers. Success does not guarantee peace. Fact is, here a while back, USA Today did an interesting article on, on the top 2% of wage earners in the U.S. And they found, through their statistics, that they have less peace than any other group of wage earners. Fact is, they ask a question, what would you be willing to pay for fill in the blank? The overwhelming response came back, says, I'd pay half a million dollars for a true friend that, that deeply loved me. Success doesn't guarantee peace in life. And some of us, we think complaining is a mark of sophistication. That we can just go around and tell everybody what's wrong with their life and why they should do things different and all this other stuff. But I'm going to tell you from God's word, it's a mark of spiritual immaturity. It's not a mark of sophistication. fact is, it's not harmless. There are so many people that say, ah, it's harmless. It's just who I am. Listen, it's not harmless. It destroys the peace in your life, and guess what? It destroys the relationships around you. And that's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, he just made this statement. He says, hey, do everything without complaining or arguing. Why? So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and deprived generation, and you shall shine like stars in the universe. The most important step, I believe, of regaining peace in your life when you have lost it is learn to worship God and learn to come to the place that you can thank him for what he is doing in your life and for not what you feel like he not doing or shouldn't be doing. And he says, he says, do everything. And do everything without complaining and to where when you start complaining this week that Boy, you immediately stop it and say, you know, it's destroying me and it's destroying the relationships around me. There's some that have been, they're such constant complainers, you don't even know you're complaining. So here's what I'd suggest to you. Enlist someone around you to help point that out. They'll be more than happy to. <laughs> I mean, you ever been around someone Man, they're constantly complaining, even on a good day. Everything's happening. And they can bring you down because of their complaints. See, complaining destroys your peace of mind. And find something to thank God about. If you're complaining because you've got to get up early in the morning, thank God you've got a job to go to. You know what? There are some people in this country... They'd love to have to get up early to go to a job. If they're asking you to do more than what you really want to do, stay late, work harder, whatever, instead of complaining about that, thank God that you've got a boss. There are some people that would love to have a boss. If you have trouble sleeping at night, man, wake up. Well, you're awake, but get up. <laughs> and walk around the house and thank God that, thank God that you can walk, or, or better yet, Go to the kids' room and thank God they're asleep. <laughs> you know what? If you're complaining that a dollar doesn't go as far as it used to, thank God you got a dollar to spend. Man, if you're complaining about your spouse, how about thanking God you have one? 
How about thanking God for how they provide for you or what they do for you? Finding something. Listen, this issue, I, this issue is, is critical about us cultivating a, an attitude, a heart of praise and thanking God. And I believe so much in this that we're doing this as a staff starting Monday and they're just, they're thrilled about this. And, and, uh, but we're entering into what I would call a complaining fast. And I'd invite some of you to join us. That for seven days, no one's going to complain about a thing. Or unless we've got a complaining jar and they can divvy up. <laughs> what would happen if some of you in your homes, in your situations, in your relationships says, you know what? We just got to learn this. In our home, we're going to go into a complaining fast. And at the end of seven days, when you break that fast as a family, when you break that fast with a friend or whoever, how about having discussions? And I'll be willing to bet your peace will be greater on the other side of that. The third thing that Paul was able to do is he understood that, that God had a purpose for him in his life. Man, every one of us needs to know that our life has meaning, our life has purpose, and Paul was no different. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of knowledge of, of, knowledge of him. In other words, we need to understand that our lives have meaning. Our life has purpose. Paul understood, my life matters to God. Do you realize that situation that God has placed you in, that area of life or circumstances, whatever, do you realize that he has placed you in? It may be for you to have a testimony. God may have put you in that situation, that circumstance for a reason because your life has purpose, your life has meaning. That's why Paul was relating this to like a victory parade, you see. And, and, and it was like our Heavenly Father, Jesus, is the conquering general. And we're in this victory parade and we all share in it with him. Verse 15, he says, for we are the aroma of Christ. This is interesting. Among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. This is interesting. But to the other, the fragrance of life. Who is equal to such a task? In other words, Paul is saying, man, my life is critical. He said, my life has meaning. I can be the aroma of Christ. The crucial task for every believer, for every Christian, is to be a testimony for him. It's, it's a fragrance or aroma to Christ. And have you noticed smells mean something different to different people? I mean, some people can smell a certain flower. They can smell a certain smell. And it reminds them of something and they like the smell. You know, there's some smells I like and, so, and, and Karen hates. I mean, we don't all like the same smells. This last week, my daughter Amanda called me from college and said, hey, I really want to go fishing. And I'm like, well, meet me in Canyon City. And uh, we drove up on the Arkansas and uh, spent a, a day with her on the river. And then I'm driving back in my truck. And, and I had the faint smell of fish in my truck, and it was awesome. <laughs> it's manly. I mean, now, now, listen, my wife hates that smell. I want to wear it the rest of the day. I'm coming in the house, I'm changing, I mean. But there's, you know what, there's some smells that she likes that I hate, like potpourri. <laughs> I don't even understand it. But she loves that, and candles and stuff like that. And you know what, there are some smells that I like and she hates. There's some smells that she likes, and Paul is making this reference and, to this issue of 
of smells. See, in their culture, he was saying, in, in the Roman triumph or the Roman victory parade, they would take the conquering general and they would parade him through the city and they would burn incense to those that were in the winning army, the conquering army, the Romans. That incense, that smell, that's the fragrance of victory. Man, they're sharing in that. But to the ones that are in that parade that are in chains and they're marching them to the Colosseum, that smell's not a good smell. That smell is the smell of death. And Paul was saying, in the same way as believers, our life has meaning, our life counts for eternal destiny. And the Christians living in this world should have the sweet aroma, if you will, to those who are being saved. But the unfortunate thing is, it can be a stench to those who are lost or who those don't know Christ. You see, genuine Christians really enjoy being around other Christians. Because there's something about that aroma, there's something about that fellowship that reminds them of salvation. Reminds them that they have a heavenly home. Reminds them that God is with them. There's something about that, but oh man, but non-Christians? Smell of death. See, non-Christians like being around people who live the same way they do so they can say, everybody lives like this. Everybody's doing this. But when a Christian's around them, they can't say that. Who has the aroma of Christ. See, I really don't like the smell of smoke. But if I'm in my house asleep and I wake up to the smell of smoke, even though I don't like it, it's a reminder to me that I need to get out of the house to escape the flames. And Paul was helping believers to understand we are so critical. The most dangerous thing for a believer is not to have an odor. <laughs> I'll reword that. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the most dangerous thing for a believer, listen, you know why, car here, we'll, we'll do this. You know why carbon monoxide is so dangerous? It doesn't have a smell. No warning. No warning. Natural gas, when it comes out of the earth, no odor. They have to introduce odor into natural gas. Why? As a warning. Even though it's a stench. Even though it smells horrible. As a warning. Danger. The most dangerous thing for a believer is to, is to not understand. They have a purpose and they have a meaning in life and they should live their life in such a way that their lifestyle helps people to understand that if they're not a believer that they need to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ so that they can escape the eternal flame if you will you may never know the influence that you have in life the influence that people that work with you that are around you 
And I'm telling you, you want to stick out in this generation? You want to shine like stars, what Paul says? The darker the night, the brighter the stars. Do you want to stick out? Don't complain. Think of something positive to say. Think of something that God is doing in your life. And the last thing is this, is you and I have to remember that, that there is no peace if there is constant deception within you. Even as a believer, if, if you're deceiving people around you, if you're not a person of integrity, if you're not a person of character, if you're, if you're not a person of truth, you will never have peace in your life. Paul goes on to say that if there's deception within you, You'll never have peace. Watch this in uh, verse 17. Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. And so Paul was saying, hey, listen, the peddlers in their day were people that were wine merchants. And they would take a nice bottle of wine and they would water it down to increase their profits. And Paul says, you know what? We're not, like the, we're not like the wine merchants. I do not water down the truth of God. It is not. It is not the scripture plus Dr. Phil, the scripture plus Oprah. It's not the scripture plus human philosophy. Paul is saying, you know what? I don't water the word of God down. I speak the truth, not for profit, not like some of those other guys. I speak the word of God with integrity, with sincerity. We looked at it last week. That word sincerity means son tested. And Paul is saying this. Paul is saying, you will never have peace in your life as a believer. If there is deception within you, over this is just word study, over 200 times the word peace is in scripture. Do you realize the majority of the time it's tied to righteousness? Righteousness just simply means right living. Where there is no righteousness, where there is no right living, there is no peace. If there's deception within you, wondering when they're going to find out, wondering when your story is going to be exposed, wondering when the shoe's going to drop, wondering when your sin will find you out. Paul says there will be no, be no peace. See what Paul did to regain peace in his life. He really moved his focus. He identified the issue. He addressed it. But then he immediately turned it to Jesus Christ. Worship, focus. There's an interesting story in the National Institute Health Magazine, and I'm always grabbing articles about creation because it just fascinates me about how God created the, the, the world. And there's an article about monarch butterflies, and monarch butterflies are ce celebrated butterfly because of their brilliant color. But the first week of November, it's coming up, or, or we're in it. <laughs> monarch butterflies migrate from Canada, the United States, to Mexico, to one mountain. Researchers have studied this for years, and they says the precision of them showing up is astonishing. They almost all show up at once. And there's so many there. Researchers that have studied this for years say when the, when the monarch butterflies fly together, you can hear their wings. Can you imagine that? So many butterflies. There's a rumble of their wings. That there's so many of them that their cumulative weight on a branch, a leaf, 
brings the branch down. And so it's astonished them about is this intelligent design? Is it in their DNA? Is it a learned behavior? How do these butterflies know? And how do they know to show up at this precise time, at this precise moment, at this precise mountain? So, they did some research. They took two groups of test butterflies. They, this is hilarious to me. They took, they took one group of butterflies and they took their antennas and they dipped them in black paint. And the paint would seal off any sense of smell because that was one idea. That maybe it's a sense of smell. So they dipped one set of an antennas of a group of butterflies into black paint. They took another set of butterflies, they took their antennas, and they dipped them in clear paint. And they set them on their way, however they do that. And here's what they learned. The butterflies with black paint were disoriented, lost their way, never made it to their destination. The butterflies with clear paint around their antennas, even though they couldn't, they did not have a sense of smell, they made it directly on time. Didn't miss a beat. And what the researchers noted, that monarch butterflies have a guidance system tied to the sun that guided them. We're no different. We're no different. We have a guidance system that is tied to the sun, S-O-N. And when that's clouded because of sin, because of complaining, because of what he's not doing in our life and what he want, we want him to do, all that other stuff, it hurts us, it hurts our peace, it hurts relationships around us. The purpose of communion that we're going to enter into was really a reminder to us to be focused on Him. I took a group from our church to, to the Holy Land in December, January, and we spent 10, 12 days there. And, and I'm just going to tell you, it changed my life. It just completely changed my life. And for so many years, I didn't want to go because I thought it was secularized and, and, uh, and everything. And, and it was a spiritual journey for 10 days. But I never will forget some of the things that I learned. And I was, we were in Jerusalem, and we began talking about the Passover. And you see, the Passover for Jews was a huge deal. A lot of the Jews would travel for weeks and months back to Jerusalem because it required them to go and to make their sacrifices and all this other stuff. And so Jesus in Mark chapter 14... He tells his disciples, he says, hey, I, I need you guys to prepare for the Passover. And so I need you to go to, to Jerusalem. There'll be a person there and give them instructions and get the Passover meal together and I'll meet you there. And so Jesus met them in the upper room. Now, of the Passover meal, once the meal was served and all the elements were in place of all of the family members, it was the head of household's responsibility to lead the family through the liturgy of the Passover, looking to the new covenant, the ultimate sacrifice that would come. And so in Mark chapter 14, verse 22, Scripture says this. As they were eating, he, Jesus, took bread. 
And all of a sudden, Jesus moves and starts changing things. He took bread, and after blessing it, it, he broke it. You see, in their liturgy, the head of household, there was a normal blessing that they would say. And they they would bless it. And after blessing it, he broke it, and it gave, he gave it to them and said, Take. This is my body. All of a sudden, they realize this isn't the normal Passover meal. Now listen, I know some of you came from spiritual backgrounds to where, where you were taught and you believed that the bread would become the body of Christ and the juice becomes the blood of Christ. We do not teach that here. Because when you look at this scripture, you find that Jesus was there in physical form. He was there with them. And what Jesus was doing, he was casting vision to them. And he he was saying figuratively, this bread represents my body. The first gift that he gave to the disciples, the first gift that he gives to us, was saying, guys, Whenever you meet together in communion, the bread is a symbol that I am there with you. I'm there with This is a spiritual moment. I'm there with you. It was his abiding promise or his abiding presence in our life that he's not only with us in this time, but as believers, he's with us all the time. Now listen. It wasn't in the breaking of bread. Don't miss this. It wasn't in the breaking of bread. It was when Jesus took the bread, reached across the table, and handed it to them. And they took it from him. And they looked him in the eyes. And he says, This is my body. I'll be with you always. You'll never be alone. Your focus is just to be on me. And the disciples knew that this wasn't going to be the normal Passover meal. And then verse 23, he goes on and, and it says that, and he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, and again, there was another prayer that they would pray at this moment. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And then he said to them, This blood is a covenant, which is poured out. It's poured out for many. Second promise. The second gift to the disciples and to us. I'm not only going to be with you always and you'll never be alone and I'm going to walk with you and I'm going to be with you. The second promise is this. And I'm the new covenant. And in my blood, the shedding of my blood is the forgiveness of sin. And you don't have to walk in the junk and the stuff of your past. I'm not only going to be with you, but I'm your savior. I'm the perfect lamb. And it's poured out, circled in my Bible, is the word many. It's poured out for many. You know what he's talking about? The believers. 
the ones that have come to the place in their life to where they've accepted him and asked him for the forgiveness of their sins, come into a relationship with him. That's who's communion's for. You don't have to be a member here at Fellowship of the Rockies to take of the elements, to take of the communion. But you do have to satisfy the biblical requirements, which is you've come into a relationship with him. Because this is set aside for believers. And then Jesus goes on and he says, and truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day, that word, that day, or phrase is really important. When I drink it anew in a kingdom of God. Our men are going to come down and begin handing out the elements. There's, there's two cups, one on top of each other. And you'd just take and you'd separate those. And then you'd pass it to the person next to you. But Jesus said this, he said, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day. That day refers to the perusa when Jesus Christ comes back. When I drink it anew in the kingdom of God and Jesus' third gift to us, his third promise to us was this. He said, I'm going to the cross. I'm fulfilling my commitment. I'm going to walk to the cross in obedience. It was also sobering for the disciples because it hit them right then. This is his last meal. When he made that statement, I will not drink again, I will not eat again, I will not take again, those guys knew this is it. This is it. This is his last meal. And then verse 26 says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. See, worship is even a part of communion. So they left Jerusalem. They walked through the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives. Can you imagine how quiet that journey was for them? Went to the Mount of Olives to prove the integrity of what he said. Anybody could make those claims. Anybody could say the things that Jesus had said. But he took them to the Mount of Olives. And they worshiped. Jesus moved his focus. Remember, Father, if anything, if this cup can pass before me, please, and all that stuff. And they worshiped him.